Welcome to the Eagle Podcast. When an eagle's health deteriorates, the eagle changes its way of life in order to survive. It leaves behind old habits and past traditions and does whatever is necessary to re-energize. My eagles are people who have found themselves in a health crisis and have explored ways to take back control of their life, to thrive, emerging stronger, healthier, and with new purpose. This podcast series is about learning from each of these eagles' journeys so that we may find our own way through difficult times. Hello and welcome. My name is Sandra Donskita and this time I'm back with an episode number six of the Eagle Podcast. Those who know me knows that I love confident women, women who shine with their charisma, who look and feel comfortable in their own skin. And today I have a woman for you who is just like that. I met Michelle Ellman at the What the Health event, where she spoke on the panel about today's one of the most popular illnesses, and that is comparisonitis. <laughs> you didn't expect me to cover that, did you? But that's a biggie, and many of us are guilty of it, right? Michelle is a body confidence coach and award-winning body positive activist, mostly known for her campaign Scarred, Not Scared. She is not just another coach on the blog. Her active presence within the body positive community with over 190,000 followers across her Instagram accounts was built because she knows what it is to go from feeling ugly, as she says, because of scars across her body, to being unshakably body confident. This girl was given a third chance to live after brain tumor operation and has a lot of insights into how to deal with trauma, how to not give a damn about what people think about her body, and to turn adversity into meaningful life with purpose. I promise, this episode is a goodie and you'll end up with at least two and a half reasons and takeaways on how to look at life and your body more positively. Without further ado, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the Eagle Podcast. You know, I'm super, super excited to chat with you today because the subjects that we are going to be discussing about today are really relevant to so many people that I've been talking in the recent years. But before, before that, tell us a little bit about who you are, about yourself and your health story. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Michelle Elman. I have had 15 surgeries from a brain tumor, puncture intestine, obstructive bowel, the system of my brain, and a condition called hydrocephalus. So I created a campaign called Scar Not Scared to talk about not just the surgeries and the scars, but the insecurity around the scars and a conversation I didn't feel was really being had in body positivity also an author and I am a speaker. My book came out last year called Am I Ugly? And I've got a TEDx talk up online called Have You Hazed Your Body Enough Today? I think that's a shortened down version of what I do. Oh my God. And how old are you? Uh, 25. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Not many 25 year olds can say such an agenda of their achievements. Congratulations. In well, most teenagers don't have 15 surgeries so it's kind of like I grew up a lot younger than most people do yeah. and I guess that's one perk that comes out of it wow 15 surgeries that clearly wasn't a walk in the park can you give us a little bit more insight into this so the surgeries, as I said, were from, fifth, uh, from a brain tumor, puncture intestine, obstructive bowel, a system of my brain and a condition called hydrocephalus. And the scars are from those surgeries. Um, so they started when I was one years old and they went up to the age of 19. The last time I was hospitalized was a few years ago, but the last surgery was when I was 19. So that's kind of where they're all coming from and the majority of them are on the, my stomach I've got a few on my head and a few on my ankles a few on my chest and yeah wow and yeah <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's enough for life <laughs> yeah let's hope so <laughs> yes uh, it is I mean you you're doing an incredible job I met you twice at events this year already and you made such a huge impression impression sitting on the panels amongst other people sharing your story and what really stood out to me about you was 
the amount of maturity you have about you. I couldn't believe you're 25. I mean, it makes sense with all the surgeries and experience you came about to be who you are now. But I'm just very curious if you can talk about the turning point in your life. At which point you decided to be a confidence coach? I actually, the plan was to become a psychologist and I decided that when I was 11, which again, my life is not normal. No 11 year old decides they're going to be a psychologist. But again, most 11 year olds haven't had 13 surgeries by that point. But it was right after my 13th surgery, I decided I was going to be a psychologist. And so I was doing a psychology degree in university. And when it was a few months before I graduated, I got diagnosed with PTSD from all of my surgeries. For people who don't know, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And stereotypically is often associated with like war veterans or rape survivors. So when I was first diagnosed with it, I, that was where my assumption jumped to. I was like, well, I've not gone to war. I've not been raped. Like nothing that bad has happened to me because I had very much normalized it. And therapy helped me for the first month. But after that, I just found that it was like going in circles and I really just wanted to move on from it. But a lot of therapy focuses on the past. And that's kind of how I... I took a break from therapy and then when I graduated, I realized that I couldn't go into any career with the mental health issues I was having at the time. And so I started looking for a life coach because I was told that life coaching focuses more on the future and how to like, how to move past the problem more so than how, why you have that problem. I 100% knew why I had that problem. So that's how I found hypnotherapy and all the things I'm trained in. And when I qualified as a life coach, I just realized, especially with women, every single person coming to me had some sort of body insecurity. And I just thought it was limiting your life in such a way. And it was almost like the hurdle that most women have to overcome before they even get to the not the real problems, but the bigger problems in their life. Yeah, it's just incredible, actually, regarding the body uh, body image. Actually, we both attended uh, very recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the Women's Health Life event. And did you notice, I think you're a part of the research that they've been doing about the body confidence. I was shocked to find out that 9%, only 9% of British women feel beautiful. Yeah. And another moment when my shock was just grew even further when I found out Poland is the first country in Europe before England where women feel least confident <laughs> seriously <laughs> oh wow um, yeah no it's I mean this these statistics have been out there for a while in terms of fact they're like I think the earliest study into this was 2012 and they had very similar findings it's also been shown that 10 year olds are more afraid of being uh, losing both their parents, cancer or war, than, uh, than being fat. So in terms of like fears that being fat is still ranked highest. And I think the statistics and the research has been out there for a while. The reason why there's suddenly a conversation about it is because of social media and social media has made it impossible to ignore. And people are getting sick and tired of the media continually showing one version of beauty and one version of health and I'm glad that women help are wanting to change that because there is a problem and like no no media organization wanted to acknowledge that um until recently so I'm like 100% behind it it's called Project Body Love um and I'm what I was one of the eight experts that consulted on it and I was mainly focusing on the fact that a lot of the language is very fat phobic and a lot of the language creates a lot of shame around food and that we need more diversity and inclusivity when it comes to the people who are actually chosen to be in those magazines. That's amazing that you're a part of such an important movement. You're very passionate about the subject, about the body image and confidence. Is this coming from your personal experience? I mean, I didn't like my body for the majority of like my childhood. I My scars were so different to anyone else's out there um, not even anyone else's scars but anyone else's bodies and it was a conversation which you don't really have as a child because most of your friends don't have I mean most people don't have scars but even 
more so when you're a child. And so that was a conversation I never really wanted to have. I thought the solution was to never talk about it and that they didn't exist. You can't see it when I'm fully dressed, so it didn't matter. But I realized that if you have that part of yourself that you're ashamed of, whether you talk about it or not, whether you hide it, whether you can see it when I'm dressed or not, it still matters. You still should talk about it. And that shame will affect you in some ways, even if it's not as conscious as someone staring at you on the street because you have a scar on your face. Yes, no, totally. Are you helping women to turn their lives around and their perception of the health of the body image? Or you find this process is actually hard with each person? I mean, I hope I'm helping. <laughs> I mean, I can um, totally see from your Instagram, yes. But I think every person's journey is very different. I think there's no purpose in comparing body confidence journeys. I don't think it's a race. I think even if you get to a place of body confidence, that can change when your body and your life undergoes a change. So you can get comfortable with your body and then you fall pregnant and you still have to struggle with your body confidence again. Or you can be happy with your body and then you suddenly go into hospital and you've got a new scar and you have to adjust and adapt to that. I don't think body confidence is a straight line ever, but I like to think that I am an example of someone who, I get a lot of like stick for saying this, but I do say I'm 100% body confident the entire time because I just don't, I don't think about my body. I don't look in mirrors and analyze my body. So in terms of like me thinking I'm ugly, I can't actually tell you the last time I thought that, or I can't tell you the last time I didn't want to leave the house because I didn't like the way I looked, or I cancelled plans because I didn't like the way I looked. That's just not how I operate my life. And one of the things I think people have to realise is like, if you don't let the thoughts in your head control your behaviour, then they're not really having an impact. But also, over time, the thoughts in your head will start changing. And the thoughts in my head don't... My go-to negative thing that my brain says to myself is not you're ugly it's not oh you're so fat or any of those things anymore because I don't feed into those thoughts do I have the like oh your writing is rubbish oh like you can't public speak at all yeah 100% I have insecurities they're just not about my body in many ways you sound exemplary as most of us despite how we look find the ways to criticize and judge our bodies and it appears to me that with certain life experiences, our body perceptions change, right? Anyway, I celebrate you for who you are. It's incredible. I mean, I understand a lot about your story from the book that I read, which is I highly recommend to people to buy it. And I'll link that in the show notes for sure. But can you tell me, have there been any moments that you did feel ugly or, un or not beautiful? Or you've always been by default this sort of thinking person? I don't think I would have ever used the word ugly. It was just not the word that I really like. Basically, I, I thought that there were the pretty girls in school, there were beautiful girls in school, and I was just not one of them. And there was a point where I think what was a bigger issue for me was that I wasn't attractive. And when I say that, I mean more so in terms of men and boys and when I was dating. And that was the like time when I was really conscious of my appearance and that I need to lose weight if I want to. And I was told all these messages growing up, as I'm sure most women are, if you want to find a boyfriend, you need to like look a certain way. And I was specifically told by family friends boys won't like you at that size and oh you need gosh. to lose weight. And I was only a size 14 and I was 15 years old. Size 14 is the average UK size. Like it's not plus size. And I was still being told like, why aren't you thin enough? And the funny thing is if you go back to like baby, baby pictures of me, like you can see that I'm not naturally like, I was naturally a thin person, but I always had like a lot of muscle. I still am a very muscular person. And, but having surgeries changes your body weight. And it always has. And most people who've gone through traumas like mine, their body will change. And not just in terms of scars, but in terms of the fact that when you starve your body for six weeks or a month, like I have, your body will also adapt to that in terms of the fact that they're holding on to the fat as a survival mechanism. My body literally has changed weight as a way of trying to protect myself. And it's the same thing that happens on diets. 
But I think during puberty and childhood, that is something that you're trying to understand. And I think I had a very confusing time because I'm mixed race and I had grown up in Hong Kong where I was very close to the beauty ideal. So the beauty ideal in Hong Kong is like, you're really beautiful if you're mixed race. So like I was brought up being told you're so lucky you get the best of both worlds. (laughs) That's the like language that is used in Hong Kong. Like you're lucky you get the best of both worlds. And then I moved over to England and it was suddenly like, oh, you're not one of us, you're Chinese. And I'm like, but I'm also British. <laughs> and so it got the beauty ideal given of not being Chinese. So most people who meet me here think I'm fully Chinese. And then I found when I was good because of my accent and because I lost the ability to speak Chinese or Mandarin, anytime I went back to Hong Kong, then I'd be asked where I came from. And so it was this new thing of, oh wait, two years ago, I was told I was a beauty ideal here. Now I come back and you're telling me I'm a foreigner because I get in a taxi and they're like, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm from here. And then when I come to England, they're like, so it was a lot of my beauty insecurities or like my insecurity around appearance also came into race was the fact that it kept changing. Whereas I think, the average person has an experience of like there's one beauty ideal and you either fit into it or you don't and you grow up with that whereas my beauty ideal was always shifting and changing so it was more confusion around it than me outright thinking I was ugly I think there was a point when I was 15 where I just accepted that I was ugly I was like but it was more so the fact that I said to myself Okay, so let's say we are ugly. <laughs> like, let's say that is a thing. Well, okay. Don't ugly people become successful all the time? Don't ugly people have fulfilled lives all the time? Why can't I just be one of those ugly people? And like, it sounds <laughs> awful, but it was really liberating to suddenly not have to care anymore. And so I stopped caring. And I was like, you know what? If I really want to lose weight, I can. I can restrict my life. I can stop going out with my friends, but I don't want to do that. So I'm going to stay the way I am. I am also going to not have plastic surgery because there was a point in my life where I really wanted plastic surgery to remove okay. my scar. And I was like, you know what? I would rather do anything other than go back into hospital. And so I was like, wait, we're not getting rid of our scars. So fine, I'm going to be fat and I'm going to have my scars. And now we just have to make something with the rest of my life with the cards I got dealt and that's just a fact. And so you confidently and positively decided to accept the way you look rather than obsessing on the idea of what plastic surgeries could do to bring you more happiness. To be honest with most of us you can't really change your appearance that much so you might as well just get used to it which was kind of the mentality I had when I was 15 years old. That's a brilliant mentality, girl. So you totally shifted your focus. Can you walk us through on the focus journey? I did. And it meant I started caring more about other things in my life. And at that time, I was 15. I was just about to go to sixth form. And I threw myself into every activity, extracurricular thing I could. And up until that age, it was very limited what you could like do outside of school. So it was like, if you were good at sports, you were good at music, you could do that, but I wasn't good at either. So it was only in sixth form where they suddenly had these new things. So you could volunteer with a charity. So I went and I was like, can I volunteer with two? And they were like, no one in the history of the school has ever asked. They called it community service. They said to me like, no one in the history of the school has ever asked to do two. And I was like, well, I want to do two. Like, this is something that I could be good at. And then there was a extracurricular activity where you could create a company. And I was like, I want to do that. So I became managing director of that. And I threw myself and then I became an officer for the school of charity stuff. It was Mm -hmm. called uh, Community Concerns. So I had all of these leadership roles that were way more important than what I looked like. And what was strange with that company was I was able to create a fashion show. And I was like, you know what? now is when I can change things. I might not be able to change the world, but I can change the beauty ideal in this school. And we'd had fashion shows before, but it was always stereotypical people who were picked. And I was like, you know what, we're gonna do it differently. And this is gonna be my small change. And fine, I might still think I'm ugly, but other girls don't need to think that they're ugly because they weren't chosen for a fashion show. Like every time 
there was a fashion show that was thrown in my school, there would be girls crying because it would just be so predictable who they would pick. And my only rule about who we should pick is that they couldn't be a brat because I didn't want to work with people with a bad attitude. And I was like, that's all I care about. I don't care what you look like. I don't care whether we're going to have to like let out the dresses or hinge in the dresses so that you can fit them. I remember I chose an 11 year old to be part of it. And a lot of the dresses we had got were like designer dresses. And my friends who were also part of the company were like, Michelle, she's not gonna fit anything. And I was like, I don't care, we're making it work. So we put a t-shirt on her that looked like a dress on her and we just made it work. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. I want it to be inclusive. So you can't just choose the older girls because they actually fit the clothes and then ignore the younger girls. Like the younger girls need someone to look up to as well. I love it. I mean, you know, the amount of passion you have, girl. <laughs> outweighs all the bullshit that goes through the head. And I think this is what women, girls need to focus on, on what changes they can make around themselves and for the community, rather than focusing so much on the look, isn't it? And I, I think th- everyone can create small change in their life. And I think there's too much in the nemesis at the moment mm. uh, of online change. And, oh, I, but I don't have followers. Not everyone in the world who has created change has followers. Like I was talking recently about money, like there's so much shame around talking about money. But even in my friendship group, I've been able to change that dynamic because generally women don't talk about money, but also women generally compete with each other and think that we're taking each other's spot. So just in my Instagram friendship group, I guess. So like we all kind of are colleagues, like the equivalent to what colleagues would be. I literally just started a dialogue about money. And so now we're a friendship group who go to each other and say, hey, are you working in this company as well? What did you charge them? And we have these open conversations. That creates a lot of change with maybe impacting five people. But I don't think that change is any less important than the change I make online just because I'm speaking to 250,000 compared to the five in my friendship group because those five in my friendship group will go out and then be the same way with their friends and hopefully that can create a culture where women don't feel this shame around making money or around charging what they're worth or not overworking because they don't feel good enough in the job that they do Yes, it's, it's, it's a ripple effect, of course. And the, the more people um, share the, the, the insights like that, I think the better it is for, for the overall society, that's for sure. And this is fun conversation. I really would love to continue that, that going that route of self-worth and everything. Can I pivot a little bit into perhaps a little bit more serious and uh, conversation around illness? When you When you say, Michelle, that you coach women on confidence do you coach any women who have confidence issues that have went through cancer or through other uh, chronic diseases or autoimmune diseases and they struggle with body image body confidence do you I think that I do a lot of that work via Scarred Not Scared because a lot of people find me and reach out because of that originally when Scarred Not Scared started it was like installments of campaigns that I did every year and a lot of people actually don't know that because I didn't have my the following I have now back then but I also go and give talks so I did a talk recently at Teenage Cancer Trust and it was one of the hardest talks I've had to do simply because it's why I started all of this and it was the Q&A that really got to me because the questions that were being asked were, I don't want to take my steroid medication because it's going to make me fat. I don't want to go to school because my head is shaved. And like mm-hmm. you've read my book, like that was one of my insecurities was yes. I, like I was having my brain tumor removed. No, it wasn't even that. It was, I was getting my valve put in and I said to the doctor, like you better not make me bald and I'm not having the surgery if you make me bald and I was kicking up a fast in the doctor's office and my mom was getting embarrassed but it's because everyone at that age just wants to be normal and I think that the thing that made me most sad about that talk was the fact that people like to say it's about health a lot of the time in body positivity oh yeah body positive but as long as you're healthy but there were people who actually wanted to stop the medication that was making them healthy for beauty. And I think we just need to acknowledge that, that like as much as everyone wants to be like, yeah, as long as you're healthy, and a lot of that conversation is around people who are fat, it's a lie because it's all about beauty. Thin is the beauty ideal. And therefore, if you're going to say, well, 
if you're fat, then you're unhealthy. Then what about the kid who's going to gain weight because they need to take steroid medication? That is their version of health. That is them trying to get more healthy. But what they're actually afraid of is the stigma of what fat people face, which everyone knows. I mean, there's studies out there that show that previously morbidly obese people would rather go blind or have a leg really? than go back to being fat because people know how badly fat people are treated in our society. So it, the more we keep feeding into this conversation of, yeah, but as long as you're healthy. Okay, but health for that teenager who is taking steroid medication is weight gain because the side effect of steroids is weight gain. That is how they become more healthy. So you can't look at someone's appearance and decide their health for them because that's not how it works. And health is not an appearance. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a, it's a difficult subject. Did you end up crying at some point? <laughs> Afterwards. I cry after most of my talks. <laughs> but I held it together on stage because I was like, if I start crying, the whole room will, and I need to not fight now. Well, oh, I, I don't know what I would be. It's hard to face that conversation because there is such a fine line of what, what it means for me to be healthy, but without giving up the, the look that you had always. Um, there yeah, I think prejudice. this is the thing. What help, you know what healthy looks like on your body the same way I know what healthy looks like on mine. But I don't think you should ever dictate that for another person. And you should... Humans have this natural way of thinking the whole world thinks like them. And we're all a little bit self-centered in the fact that we think, oh, well, if I can lose weight, so can you. Okay, but you've not had my medical record. Okay, but you don't have my body. Like, why are you applying the rules for you to the rules for me? Why don't you mind your own business? Worry about your body and I'll worry about mine. And that is like the very basic thing that I wish people would operate their life on is my body, my business. Do not talk about another person's body because it is none of your business. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, really by the sounds of it that you having this, your own adversity, facing that adversity really benefited you in, in the way probably that you didn't expect is going to bring you to the purpose you're having right now, isn't it? I think I created it and that is something that I 100% own because I used to be like, oh, well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that like I managed to turn it. I got the right set of parents that made me, no, I got given a really bad <laughs> hand and I'm at the point in my life where I own it. I created good out of something that was a really bad situation and not everyone does that. And it took a lot of willpower and it took, a lot of hard work getting through PTSD, especially, especially when I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it took a lot of hard work of sitting down on myself and being like, I want a better life for myself. So I'm going to have to do the emotional labor of like feeling those emotions. And no one wants to feel those emotions. They're horrible. And you yeah. don't want to be crying every day for three months. But I had to go through that. And I think it's why I like, got to a point in my life where I own it. You know what? Not everyone can make good things out of, make lemonade out of lemons. But I managed to because I want to make the most of my life. And I think the best gift that the surgeries have given me. And I, I joke about this because I don't think I was given a second chance at life. I think I was given a third chance at life. Wow. <laughs> Which one? Can you break so, it down? Yeah. So my second chance at life was when I flatlined when I was 11 because it's a long complicated story to read about in my book but essentially I flatlined when I was 11 and I was brought back to life and that was my second chance but I wasted it because what that did was it made me really scared of life mm -hmm. and so I stopped living life because I was so worried about going back in hospital so my third chance at life was when uh, I was 19 and I went back into hospital and I had this paranoia that I was going to die in 2013 because a friend had made a really bad joke when I was younger. And it was that hospitalization that I genuinely thought I was going to die medically. There was a chance, but not so much of a, a chance as there was when I was 11. But it was this superstition that I had that I was more focused on. But it made me almost go through my life and everything that I regretted were you think it's going to be the big things and it's really not i remember there was a card game night and i love playing cards and there was one night where i was at home and one of my guy friends called me up and was like 
um, hey, we're all playing cards, come over. And I looked out the window, it's December, it's freezing, it's raining. No, it's a 20 minute walk, I'm not going. And I don't know why, but for six weeks, all I thought about was why I didn't go to that card game and why I didn't say yes to that. And it was things like that. I was like, I'm not going to be that person ever again. I don't want to, if I ever end up back in a hospital bed, I don't want to have a memory like that haunt me for six weeks. It's the silliest memory. We've all had those moments where we've been like, oh, I'd rather stay home. I can't be bothered. I think the thing with this memory was it wasn't me choosing to spend time with myself. It wasn't me choosing to stay home because I wanted some alone time. It was me being too lazy to live my life. I would rather be cold, get wet, but have made it there. And that was what my third chance at life was. And I joked about it the other day on my page. I was, I don't say no because I'm scared. <laughs> Michelle has gone to pick up a parcel. She didn't say no to a postman. <laughs> And that's what happens with a self-employed person recording a podcast episode at home. I love it. I'm at home myself. This is my life. And while we are waiting for Michelle to come back and continue this fabulous conversation, which I hope you're enjoying, let me take this opportunity and share one of the reviews that's left by a listener on iTunes. And the review is by Wild Falcon, who says... With so many people today struggling with health issues, both large and small, yet somehow unable or unwilling to talk about them, this podcast is a breath of fresh air. I've been impressed and awed by the honesty of the guests talking about not only some of the most challenging and painful parts of their lives, but how they have managed the experience to drive a better future for themselves. Each had their own story and their own way of understanding how life has impacted them, Yet, despite the differing narratives of all of them, have found a core of inner strength for their future. Well, thank you, Wild Falcon, for such a wonderful review. If you like this podcast too, I'd really appreciate you leave your review on iTunes as well, because this helps people find it in the big pool of podcasts out there. Thank you. Bye. Okay, sorry. Uh and so welcome back. <laughs> I hope um, okay, let me carry on from, um, so I think that was my third chance at life because I never wanted to have those regrets about a life that I didn't live. And so I was making this joke the other day on my Instagram that I don't say no because I'm worried. I don't say no that because I'm scared. I literally only say no if I, one, physically can't do it because I have another commitment or two, it doesn't align with my morals and values. But I don't say no because I'm worried about something because I just don't want those regrets. And so that is the one gift that has come to me. But I do get it when people have gone through my experiences and that just makes them want to close in on themselves because I did that for eight years. But I got two hospitalizations to give me two life lessons. And I finally learned the second time. I mean, I've gone into hospital more than two times, but those were the two most serious ones that I shifted my outlook on life. There are a few things that really come out from, from, from all you said just now. One thing is definitely you realized that you needed to break some unhealthy patterns to allow you to live the, the best life that you want and, and to come to the point when you can give to people and to, you, to share your gift. That's number one. So maybe at some point you could talk a little bit what other kind of unhealthy patterns you broke. And another thing is, Michelle, that just brings me, when you just spoke about 2013, your second time of um, hospitalization, you just recently shared an incredible video on Instagram, The Memory of 2013, where you're at the hospital singing a very sad song. And someone in the background filming says, oh, but this is so sad, Michelle. And I loved your response because I think you said, with the biggest smile on your face and with this giggle in your voice, <laughs> saying, my situation is sad. The song is suitable in the current situation of this room. You know, my heart yeah. was... <laughs> there's, um, there's another... So she is my first ever best friend. She was my primary school best friend because I'm in Hong Kong in that video. 
that's my sense of humor, number one. Number two, as much as I was laughing and smiling, it was a break of my day that I didn't have to think about or doctors weren't going to come in and interrupt or nurses weren't going to come in and interrupt. But it was me just trying to get through it. And like, do I ever lose my sense of humor at that point? No, but is it me putting a smile on? Yes, it is. Was I genuinely happy in that moment? I was trying to be. I was trying to have a fun afternoon with my friend and take people and appreciate that for what it was, was that I was really grateful that she was there. I was really grateful she had come to visit me. But I also wasn't going to deny that this is a rubbish situation. I don't want to be here. Valentine's Day was approaching and I was really concerned about that. There was a guy who I was dating for six weeks and he hadn't texted me once apart from to like a Facebook post that said, uh, (laughs) basically, my dad was pulling the plug out of the wall but he got the word plug confused with socket. And he said like, oh, should I pull the plug? And I said to my dad, like, you shouldn't say that to someone lying in a hospital bed. <laughs> um, and I posted that joke on my Instagram, and, uh, on my Facebook, and he liked it. And I was like, of all the things you could like, you want to <laughs> like a joke about me dying, but you can't be bothered to send me a text? It's so funny because like all of this stuff is really serious. Like obstructive bowels is serious. I could have genuinely died. But at the same time, I'm also just a teenager who wants to get back to the guy she's dating dating and I'm sat in a hospital bed worrying about the fact that like he's not texted me it's still the same teenage drama because I was 19 years old and that's what I cared about and I cared about getting back for Valentine's Day and I cared about getting back for my best friend's birthday and that's all I cared about so it is funny when you look at those memories because and those videos where I'm just being me, but at the same time, like that is not me in my best place, but I am still able to laugh, crack jokes. In fact, like cracking jokes kind of make it a little bit better and a little less awkward. But in terms of the first part of the question, the other unhealthy habits, I have a million and one unhealthy habits. For example, one is that I believed that I caused my surgeries because everyone told me that everything happens for a reason. So that feeds into your life in many different ways. And I do think when it comes to unhealthy habits, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You need to like get one part before you can fix another. For example, the reason why I started talking to someone about my scars was because of my love life. But actually, now, what, 10 years on from the first time I ever thought about kissing a boy, I wasn't in the place to even work on that area in my life until I had worked on my relationship with my own body and had worked on my relationship with because my relationship with my own body is also my relationship with my worst trauma like my worst trauma is painting across my stomach I can't avoid it when I look in the mirror every day so I couldn't have fixed the piece of my life that was my love life until I fixed the part of myself like had an issue around my trauma or had an issue around my body but I think everyone's pieces of their puzzles work in different way and just because I hadn't fixed my love life doesn't mean I didn't stop dating I dated throughout I mean I'd have a few of the stories in my book but I dated throughout my teenage years but it was just it hadn't got to the point where I could properly fix all the unhealthy habits so I tended to attract people who weren't great for me but until I changed that relationship with myself that unhealthy pattern was not going to fix itself because I needed other pieces of the puzzle in place for me to move on with that. Of course that makes sense and you know you just mentioned something I think very important that people will want to dig a little bit deeper and where I want to go back into this memory of 2013, you really emphasize in the caption under this video saying, and this is why I emphasize that illness is not inspirational. It is trauma. Yeah. Despite you singing and putting a nice show basically for the friend and you're trying to really get the best time you can, I still at the end of the day, there is trauma behind that smile. I mean, can we talk a little bit about, about traumas and and I th- think you can. I mean, when when we, earlier we were talking about like health looks different on your body and health looks different on mine. Even if you took away the hospital bed, the tube out out because I have a tube in my nose in that video. Even if you took away my IV drip, all of that, I don't think I look healthy in that video. I look like I'm dead behind the eyes. I look like I'm going through something because I am going through something, and I have I have that 
sadness in my eyes and like you might not well the average person might not be able to pick up on it but I can pick up on it because I know my body and I know what I'm thinking in that video and I know what I'm feeling um and that is why I talk about the fact that it's not inspirational and like if you want to look at that video very superficially yes there's a laugh there's a smile but I mean to be honest you're going to be hard pushed to find any video no matter <laughs> where I'm not laughing or smiling because that's just my demeanor that's how I speak sure. but if you look into my eyes, if you look into like how I'm holding myself, I'm going through the worst of it. And I think I can see that. And if you look at it closely, I think other people can see it as well. We are all very good in front of friends and close people, maybe, you know, to cover up a little bit. And okay, this was what, five, six years ago now? And in retrospect, of course, you can see and you can say behind that smile, I know what's hiding. But did you actually, Michelle, did you recognize your own traumas at the time? I think I had a really hard relationship with the word trauma because, again, I thought it was to do with rape and uh, war veterans mm -hmm. because I had never been told it was a big deal. I thought what I'd been through wasn't important enough. So I think my first stepping stone was actually calling it trauma. That took about a year for me to even call it trauma. After I was diagnosed, the first thing I said, I don't have a trauma. It's not like I had cancer, which <laughs> the therapist was responded with, what's the difference between a brain tumor and cancer? And I said, one's, one's benign and one's malignant. Mine is cut out and not in my brain anymore. Therefore, it's not important. Wow. Um, and that was the first thing I had to deal with. You went through a trauma. Not all trauma looks the same. Cancer is just as important as any other illness. But just because we talk about cancer more doesn't mean it's more important. And learning that like what I did go through was a big deal and that I can talk about it. And I felt really guilty talking about it all the time. Why? So, because I thought it was ungrateful for the people who had, hadn't survived because I survived. So there's a common thing in people who have trauma called survivor's guilt. And so I thought it was ungrateful to complain about being alive, not being alive, but complain in general, be alive and complain because there were people who weren't alive. And the weird thing happens is when you go through trauma, you think you have to earn your right to life, which is something that most people would never have to think about or even like worry about. And that's another like unhealthy thing, which sounds really selfless and lovely. Like, oh, I wanted to overcompensate for the people who lost their lives. Like, oh, what a great person you are. But carrying that burden every day is a really bur heavy burden to bear and to make one life count for hundreds if not thousands of people who are in the hospital at the same time as me that is not a thing that I should have ever had to carry and as much as it sounds like really um magnanimous magna what's that word magnanimous <laughs> that's not the word <laughs> what uh but it sounds really like selfless and it sounds really like, oh, I'm such a good person. Like, that's not where it was coming from. It was coming from guilt. It was coming from me being like, well, why did I survive? Why didn't other people survive? What, what did I do to deserve being alive? Wow, that's loaded. But you, Michelle, did you realize you were comparing yourself to the people with other people in the hospital? And you felt like, okay, maybe your situation is a little better than theirs. But what about people that were surrounding you who were totally opposite to you, who were complaining and moaning about things that in comparison to you, they looked minor? I mean, it's just not where my brain went to. If you'd said to me, okay, but why aren't you comparing yourself to everyone who is healthy I honestly my brain kind of I mean even you just saying it now because I've never thought about it my brain kind of goes to a halt you know when like you've not thought about something before it's just not what my brain went to it's why I guess and it's funny because I've written this caption but I've not posted it which says people always whenever they moan about colds then apologize afterwards to me so they'll be like oh I'm so ill at the moment oh sorry I shouldn't be talking about this to you like you had a brain tumor kind of thing and the caption says oh I can't live my life like that when someone complains about a cold to me I don't go I can't believe you're talking to me about that I've had 15 surgeries and if I did I'd be a very angry person I don't want to hold that but also my mountain can be your molehill and your molehill can be my mountain 
and that's okay. I'm not expecting you to know what 15 surgeries feels like. And if you have a stomachache and it feels bad, you are allowed to talk about it. And I, I joke in the caption as well that like, you should see me when I got my wisdom teeth removed. Majority of adults have had their wisdom teeth removed. You should have seen me, even the dentist was like, I'm looking at your medical record and wondering why you're freaking out so much. Cause I've never had a patient freak out so much, but I look at your medical record. And I'm like, you've eaten a million things which are worse than this. Why are you freaking out? It's literally a routine procedure. But like, and I was like, but it's in my face and I don't want it in my face. Anyone who saw me around that time thought I was like losing it because they were like, you've been through so much, but you're worried about this? Yes, because this I have to be awake for. This is in my face. This is you putting a needle in my face. <laughs> um, and so like if someone in that moment came to me and went, why are you complaining about this? I have cancer. I'd be like, great. And that doesn't help my situation. <laughs> so, I mean, I try not to compare myself. I think I struggle more with comparing myself who've had it worse than me, but I don't ever compare myself to people who've had it better than me because just because you've not had medical problems doesn't mean you don't have financial problems, doesn't mean you don't have, you don't face more racism than I do or you aren't disabled in some way. There are other issues that aren't always medical issues. I think like the solution is to stop comparing and it's cliche because I think we all do it to a certain extent. Yes, we do. And um, I admire that about you, Michelle. So are you not guilty of comparing yourself to others in any other ways? In my life now, the guiltiest thing I am in terms of comparison is comparing myself in terms of work. I do that a lot. I was doing it earlier this morning and I had to stop myself. And I had to stop myself and go, I am doing so much right now. I am overworked. I am tired and I am busy. I literally could not fit one more thing on my schedule. But because I went on Instagram stories and I wasn't invited on one trip somewhere, I went, oh, well, they don't like me. <laughs> they don't want to work with me. But I was like, every other person in the world wants to work with me, but the one company that doesn't is where my mind goes. So like, we're all guilty of comparison, but in terms of health, I try not to do it because if you're in pain, you're in pain and your pain is just as valid, even if it is not the same pain as mine. It is just as important because pain sucks and that you are able to say that. And whether that's emotional, physical, mental pain it deserves its time of day and it deserves your attention whether other people have been through worse or not yeah no totally that this is what i meant michelle that you are beyond your age mature the way you look at illness and which is a, such a big subject but can i just tell to all the listeners that you are at this stage looking at the subject of comparison on and accepting others that when they are ill and you're not comparing to them because the time has passed. I want to draw people's attention that if they do read your book, they can see the actual journey of you getting yeah. to the stage. You haven't been always, there have been moments when you snapped maybe at people, when you thought, why yes. the fuck are you complaining? There is nothing to complain and moan about. Yes. Just look I mean, at I the bigger it, picture. In the book, I could say it. I do it to my godmother and my mother because they're complaining about wrinkles and like, I mean, honestly, it's it's still, if you want me to snap, that is the one thing to start complaining about in front of me because that comes from the part of me that feels guilty about being alive and being grateful for being alive and other people aren't. So when people complain about wrinkles, I'm like, you're complaining about literally being alive enough. And so that is one of my like things that make me snap. But when it came to writing the book, I was like, I have to be honest. The thing I absolutely hate is this inspirational stuff. Because I was a sick child, I am therefore automatically get the badge of inspiration. And I'm like, no, I was an awful patient. And I've never said I wasn't. But you made the, in, the assumption. And like, you, you read about it in my book. I am a brat half the time. I love I'm it. Like, <laughs> But like, I make it difficult for the nurses. I make it difficult for the doctors. I pull my own IV up. I had an NG tube that goes from your nose down to your stomach. And I pulled that out every single night. And the nurse even turned to me and was like, you know, there were 95 year olds down the corridor who live with this tube a day in, day out. You've had it for one day and you can't even put up with it. And I was like, I'm not putting up with it. Sorry. Um, I forced the doctors to take me out of hospital. I'm an awful patient. But 
because I got handed a bad deal with life, people think I'm inspirational simply because I survived it. And like my go-to response to that is I didn't have a choice. So <laughs> if I had a choice, I wouldn't have chosen to go through it. If anyone had a choice, no one would have chosen to have my life. But in the same way that like, if anyone could choose my body, probably like 99% of the world, me included, would not choose my body either. But you don't get to choose things in life a lot of the time. And you do get to choose what you make out of it. And I just refuse to waste life. And that's what the wrinkles conversation really triggers in me. And it's not about wrinkles. It's about the fact that like we talk about anti-aging and like people don't realize that anti-aging means dying. And so like with me, especially, there's a very fine line between anger and passion. <laughs> but like a lot of this <laughs> anger and this passion comes from the fact that people don't realize that life is so short and I actually had to live it more than once in order to emotionally realize it as well. And I think that's the fastest way to piss me off is like, don't appreciate life. And I wish people didn't have to go through the pain I went through in order to appreciate it. But then I also have the more logical, rational side of myself that goes like, I would also not be appreciating life in the same way if I hadn't had my experiences. And in many ways, that's a beautiful thing that you don't have to live with the heavy burden of feeling guilty of being alive. And it's a beautiful thing that kids get to grow up being innocent. And it's something I didn't get. And I'm jealous. And I hate that. And that's the real side of illness that I wish I had a memory of 18 years of being able to worry about the most mundane, silly thing and didn't have to worry about ending up in hospital. And I think I created that experience for myself. So now when I look back at uni, I was like, that is the time in my life I had zero responsibilities because I got rid of my responsibility. I'm in charge of me staying out of hospital. Nope, <laughs> I'm just gonna throw caution in the wind and do whatever risky thing I wanted to do and just live my life. So I created it. I created a childhood for myself, but there are moments where I get angry about things. There are moments where I get jealous. There are moments where I get really sad. And like, I mean, if you ever see me watching Grey's Anatomy, it's like buckets. And my friend used to joke, she called it the fault in our stars moment. So the fault in our stars is a, a rom-com about two kids with cancer. And we went to go see it. And 10 minutes in, I start crying. And I don't stop crying to the end of the movie. But I'm like hysterically crying to the point where people are looking. And it's so loud that like my friend thinks of taking me out. And there are moments like that, which just like trigger everything in me and I can't hold it together. And like my friends are used to it because that is what trauma is. Like trauma doesn't just go away and it needs to come out of me. So I let it come out of me because it's important. And I feel like it's important to feel those things, but it's not normal. <laughs> it's something I wish I didn't have, but I do have it and I have to live with it. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, all the emotions that you're feeling, the anger, the frustration, whatever you mentioned, everything you is just human. It's totally yeah. it's totally cool. I I relate to everything you said myself. I didn't address my trauma of having cervical cancer. It wasn't uh, in any way aggressive in the way that other people are affected. But I didn't address my trauma for years. And I'm talking five, six years. And then it came out in full swing. It was tears, yeah. it was anger, it was blame, and so on and so forth. Can I ask you before we finish our conversation? So one thing that I loved, it's one of my favorite quotes from your book. You know, you mentioned some of the phrases you heard from people telling you while you were at the hospital or outside. So I'll just cite a few. So for instance, you were, you were told, oh, Michelle, you're so lucky. You have the best care in the world or everything happens for a reason. I mean, these kind of things, do you agree that many people tell to others who, who go through illness without thinking, right, whether it's going to affect? And I love how you almost described it as the propaganda machine of positive thinking. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think it's so accurate because there are so many quotes out there we see on Instagram. In retrospect, what people could tell to their friends or family members or colleagues at work, if they have illness, what is it okay to say and, and what is it annoying for a person to hear? I think the reason why people do it is because 
I think there's this illusion that if you aren't positive, you can't fight your illness. And so you need to be positive in order to do it. But actually, I think what is greater harm is not allowing someone the permission to have their negative, which I use negative in like a quotation mark, because I don't think any emotions are negative, but having your negative emotions. So there are five negative emotions, anger, sadness, fear, shame, and guilt. And they're allowed to feel all five. They're allowed to feel all five at the same time. They're allowed to feel all five while also being happy. And so what I would tell someone in that position is, it's such a cliche now, but it is the thing that has really helped me is like, it's okay to not be okay. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be sad. I wish someone in hospital has said to me, you're allowed to be angry. Because Mm. out of all of the emotions, anger is actually the only negative emotion that produces energy. Because I was never allowed my anger, it's probably the emotion that comes out in me most. And like, especially with a lot of my impassioned rants, a lot of people call it passion, but a lot of that is anger behind it that is fueling that. And it'll be because someone like body shames someone and I'll get really angry about it, but then I'll like feed it into something productive. But it's because anger was the one emotion I was never allowed to have. And growing up, that was like, I just needed someone to tell me it was okay to be angry. And because like, when you aren't allowed to be angry, it does still come out, but it would come out when someone like, I remember I yelled at a girl in school because she stepped on my toe. I'm friends with her today and she still remembers it. And she was like, it was like this beast came out of you and all I did was step on your toe. It was by accident. But it was like, I had bottled up all this anger about things that were way larger than her and way larger and bigger than her stepping on my toe. It was like, I needed a release. So like the smallest things, and you see people doing it on a daily basis with road rage. That's what they're actually doing. They're not processing their anger. So they're letting it out in a contained, safe environment. But it's, it's better than shouting at a friend because she stepped on your toe right. doing it in a car when they can't hear you. But road rage is still not good. It's still not okay. And that can still get you in situations that you don't want to be in. So give people the permission to have all of their varied, complex, nuanced feelings. And just the one thing I think I always really appreciated was I could say to my friends especially when I was hospitalized when I was 19 and the main thing I appreciated was someone distracting me from what was going on in my life and making it normal so it was like them talking to me about their boy issues or like them talking to me about the night out they treated me like I was normal and I sometimes when you're in hospital, you just want someone else to talk about their problems because yours are too big and scary to handle and manage in that moment. And realistically, the time to manage your emotions and the trauma is is not whilst you're still in a hospital bed. You can process it after you've come out because I don't think a lot of trauma is processed until you feel safe and I don't think I personally could have ever processed my trauma whilst I was living it. So a conversation about your boy drama is going to take me away from the world that I need to escape right now. And that is a great thing for me. Wow, Michelle, this is so helpful to me. And I'm sure listeners have taken mental notes about this sensitive and very important subject too. I'd love to chat more and uncover more with you, but what are... Two or three things that you would like to say for the dessert of this conversation. Any woman who is listening or anybody who is experiencing illness or is even laying in bed at the hospital. So to a person lying in a hospital bed, I would tell them that recovery and processing trauma is a long process, but First of all, physical recovery is very important. It was something that once I left hospital, I just wanted to get away from it all. But in hindsight, if I had done the physical recovery, like the rehabilitation, the physiotherapy that I needed, I would be in a lot less pain nowadays than I needed to be. And so as much as it's boring, as much as it, you just want to get away from all of it, it's important. That is one of the main things I would say, because that has such a lasting impact on your life. But also... Like you said, it took you six years to process your trauma. It took me 10 years to process mine. So it took me 10 years to start processing mine. So I've like been processing it for the last five years now, but it took me 10 years to start. I actually think 
it is okay to take your time with that. If you're not ready to deal with it, if you don't feel safe to deal with it, that is okay too. And everyone's journey is separate. Everyone's journey is different. And the final thing I would say is that you don't need to be positive in hospital. That is an illusion. And it doesn't help you fight it any harder if you just... I mean, my therapist uses an analogy. I have an amazing therapist called Michelle Zelli, and she uses an analogy that says um, positive thinking is like putting a pile of shit on top of an ice cream and pretending it's still ice cream. Um, (laughs) And I think it's literally the perfect analogy. And I'm like, yep, that's exactly what people do in hospital. Like, they literally will just, like, put a smile on their face and laugh through it when actually they know it's a pile of poo. (laughs) I know it's a pile of poo, but we're just all going to pretend it's ice cream. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's been brilliant. So, darling, so where people can find you? Because I think we intrigue people to such a degree that they will want to stalk you on Instagram and read your book. What are the best places to find you? So, uh, Instagram is Scar Not Scared and Body Positive Memes. Twitter is Scar Not Scared. My Facebook and YouTube are Michelle Elman. My book is on Amazon, WH Smith and Waterstones. And my TED Talk is Have You Hated Your Body Enough Today? Mm, very nice. And I still owe you Amazon review. I promise I'll do it today. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. Love as many Amazon reviews as possible. Of course, that's all we can do for each other. It's been an amazing, amazing conversation. Totally, in some places, unexpected. Thank you for uh, taking us on a journey of your life and body positivity and what it takes to be body positive. Thank you so much. You are one of my very wonderful eagles. Thank you for having me. How amazing is Michelle? She was a guest I wanted to get since I met her and I'm so glad we did this. Young, incredible role model for body positivity and so much more. I love the way she approaches body image and how passionate she is to have this conversation and shows up in such a big way. Gosh, it's so inspiring to hear such stories and to understand how such a transformation and growth looked like and felt like for her. And I'm so grateful that Michelle showed up and brought it up for us today. I hope this conversation leaves you uplifted and inspired to look at your illness and body in a positive way and think about your purpose. It has certainly had that effect on me. Well, until next time, Eagles, keep yourselves happy, joyful and inspired. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Eagle Podcast. Don't forget to share it with others and subscribe to it.